Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Well, as many of you know, Canada has one governmental system with three distinct but cooperative branches. There is the legislative, which makes laws. There is the executive, which implements laws. And then there is the judicial, which evaluates laws. One governmental system, three distinct but cooperative branches. And this whole system, working as intended, depends on each of those branches doing what they were designed to do, contributing what they were designed to contribute, and not confusing themselves with the other two. It's very important for the whole thing to function as it's supposed to. If judges start trying to enact laws rather than interpret them, or if the prime minister starts making laws rather than applying them, the whole system suffers. It stalls. It does not operate the way that it was designed to operate. Now, I use that opening image because as we turn to the Abrahamic covenant this morning, we will find that it functions in a very similar way. It is one covenant, one oath, but it has three very distinct but cooperative branches to this oath. So this Abrahamic covenant, it really runs a huge swath of biblical real estate. It goes from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22, with Genesis 15 right in the middle being kind of the epicenter of the covenant itself. But as we study it this morning, I wanted to use that image so that we can make sure that we understand that these branches must remain distinct, these branches of this one covenant, and we never want to conflate nor confuse them. And we will see that, I pray, as we go through this covenant. Now, before we do that, I should offer a brief review for those who weren't with us last week, or for those of us who were with us last week, but who have a memory like mine and would benefit anyway from a review. So here it is, just a brief one. We started last week by talking about what a covenant is. A covenant involves multiple parties binding themselves to the requirements and conditions of an oath formally declaring intention, here's what I will do, and creating anticipation, here's what will be done. It's very important for us to understand that a covenant or an oath is only worth as much as its clarity, as its understandability, as its endurance. For example, if years from now, I say to my wife, I know I said for richer or for poorer, but what I really meant was not that poor, If I really said that, I swore a covenant, but now down the line, I'm changing the terms. That negates the whole covenant. The covenant is only as good as the clarity of its terms and the staying power of those terms. We cannot go back in time and reinterpret or capitulate or add or change anything or the covenant is void. Especially so when it's the infallible God speaking. When God says, here is the covenant I swear— We need to understand that that covenant that he enters into, it means exactly what it means. And that's what we have been hammering on in this series, and we will continue to do that. Now, last week we began this series looking at the six biblical covenants that God made with humanity. Because in them, he declares his intentions for saving this world, for restoring it from the sin, everything that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. He declares his intentions, but he also 
in these covenants creates anticipation for those of us who long for the renewal. We know what to expect because he said so. And the more we pay attention to these covenants, the more we can build a cumulative anticipation in us. So just for a matter of review, first of these biblical covenants, first, there is the Noahic covenant, which we looked at last week in Genesis 9, and saw that quite simply it's God swearing to never again destroy the world with a flood. It's foundational, that covenant, not only in what it declares, but in also how we understand covenants. I mean, we hear that covenant, I will never again destroy the world with a flood, and we say, what does he mean? Well, he means he will never again destroy the world with a flood, and that becomes our template for understanding the covenants that come next. The second covenant, the one in question this morning, is the Abrahamic covenant. Then comes the Mosaic covenant, that which God makes with Israel after delivering them from Egypt. You'll recall he gets them to the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, and God swears a covenant with that nation. And for that next week, Lord willing, we will look through Exodus 19 through 24. Fourth is the priestly covenant of Numbers 25, and then comes the Davidic covenant of 1 Samuel chapter 7, and then finally the new covenant introduced in Jeremiah chapter 31. So six biblical covenants. And I mentioned last week that we are going to ask three questions of each of those covenants. First, what is it? What is that covenant? What are the contents of the oath? More specifically, what did the original recipients hear and understand when God said those words? We need to understand that because that is what's expected. What did they hear? What did they anticipate? What is that covenant? The second question is, where does it fit? How does it interact with the other covenants and the whole biblical storyline? And finally, what does it matter? Why does this intersect with our life? How does this make a difference for us? We go to the Noahic covenant. What difference does this make for me going forward in the week ahead? And so we will look at those three questions for each of the six covenants. We have the Noahic, we have the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, we have the priestly, we have the Davidic, we have the new covenant. What are they? How do they fit? And why do they matter? That is the series in a nutshell. Now, without other way, let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant, our covenant that we're looking at this morning, and ask that first question, what is it? What is the Abrahamic covenant? And as I said, there are three branches to this covenant. The prelude of all begin in Genesis chapter 12, which is why I asked you to turn there. Genesis chapter 12. So please turn there if you haven't yet already. And as you do, let's remember that God just cleansed the world with a flood. We looked at that last week. He cleansed the world with a flood. But when Noah and his family stepped off the ark after that judgment had come, they stepped off as sinners. We noticed that last week. While the waters wiped away a lot of depraved people, it could not wipe away the depravity within people. And so Noah and his family stepped off as sinners. And what we will notice today is that sin does what sin does, even in Noah, in that refurbished world that he stepped into. It starts to spread immediately. As soon as Noah's feet hit that lush, never-before-stepped-on grass, sin starts to do its thing. In fact, in the exact same chapter that God says, I will never again destroy the world with a flood, in that same chapter, Noah gets blackout drunk, passes out naked, and becomes the victim of, the victim of incestuous voyeurism. And then a couple chapters after that, we have the famous or infamous Tower of Babel 
where God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And Noah's descendants say, we're going to stay right here. We're not going anywhere. In fact, we're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower that reaches heavens. And God says, if you won't do it your way, you'll do it my way. And he doles out languages, confuses them, and then they scatter throughout the earth. But as we come up to Genesis chapter 12, we're reminded again of humanity's default posture. It's rebellion against our creator. Sin comes off the ark, and all of a sudden, sin is everywhere again. Our default posture before our creator is rebellion. It's almost like we are a wicked metronome. Tick, tick, tick. We have one beat, and it's sin. And it will continue to do that until the almighty sovereign hand comes in and stops it. And as we come to Genesis chapter 12, that's exactly what happens. God reaches in, and he brings something that is not native to us. It's an act of grace. That's what we find in Genesis chapter 12. It says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, and immediately we need to ask the question, well, who is this Abram? And the answer is, nobody. That's the thing. He is really a nobody. He is nobody special, except for the fact that God uses this nobody, as we will see in the chapters ahead. And as we keep reading, we notice these three branches of the promise that God makes to this nobody. The first branch is a promise of location. Read with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So here's a promise of a particular land that God has in mind. It's a promise of location. And second, there's a promise. Here's branch number two, the promise of population. Keep reading. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So we have a location, and now we have a population being promised to this nobody, to Abram. Now what makes this second branch even more amazing and astonishing is that at the end of chapter 11, we just learned that Abram and Sarai don't have any children. In fact, Sarai can't have children. And we learn in verse 4 of chapter 12 that Abram is 75 years old. So he's no spring chicken. So we have this 75-year-old man and his wife. She can't have children. They have no children. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a massive population, descendants upon descendants. You understand why Abram might have trouble with that going forward, and he does. But we know that those are not even obstacles to our God, those things. That's nothing for our God. And so God here promises not only the blessing of a single child, but the blessing of a multitude of descendants, a promised population to live at that promised location. Now, the third branch comes as we keep reading, and it's the promise of a global benediction, of blessing. Continuing on at the end of verse 2. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So not only is God promising Abram a land and a great nation, he says he's going to bless the globe through him. And so you see here, we have this one covenant with these three branches. They are distinct, but they are cooperative. We have a location, a population, and a global benediction, a blessing that spans the globe. 
Now, in the minutes that follow, I want to just trace those three branches as we go through the next number of chapters. And so this is where it's going to get a little bit intense. And so I want you to track with me with your Bible. I hope you have it open. We're going to go through from chapter 12 here through to chapter 22 and see how these three branches are reiterated over and over and over again. And we say, why? Because God doesn't mean what he says or he's confusing? No, it's for Abram's benefit. It's for our benefit because we doubt. God keeps coming back and says, yeah, you know that promise I made? Branch one, branch two, branch three. They are all still legitimate. So let's start just by keep reading in chapter 12, starting in verse four. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem and to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. In other words, the people were there. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, notice that, plural, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, well, verse 3 was a little bit vague. You know, the land which I will show you. Trust me, there's a land out there. Verse 7 is very specific. God says, here it is. This is it. This is the land. You're looking at it right now. And again, we want to notice the plural of your descendants. How many descendants does Abram have at this point? Zero, right? It says, to your descendants I will give this land right here. Now in chapter 13... The place is starting to get crowded, where Abram is squatting. He's got Lot with him, and they're both getting increasingly wealthy. Their herds are getting bigger and bigger, and it's starting to get a little tight. And so the text tells us that Lot picks a spot for himself off in the distance, and he moves his belongings there. Look at 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. There's the first two branches again. Descendants and this land forever. Location and population confirmed again. Now, a quick aside here. We know that Abram dies before his descendants take over this land. He falls asleep. He, he dies. So when he says, I'm promising this to you and your land, what does that assume but resurrection? Resurrection must take place. If Abram is going to live and inherit this land, resurrection must take place. But that's beside the point. Let's keep going. So verse 14, I'm going to skip over this. But as we come to chapter 15, suffice it to say that there have been some speed bumps along the way. Like all of us, we can relate to Abram. God speaks to us. We're convicted. But as time passes... We start to wonder, did God really say, just like in the garden? I don't know if he was so clear. And, and Abram tries to step out and help God out some places, and he doubts here and there, and every single time, hardship ensues for Abram. And then we come to chapter 15. And this is the epicenter, as I said, of this narrative of where the oath is sworn. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 
Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is, is Eleazar of Damascus, someone that didn't even come from Abram, this, this servant in the house, he's going to get everything, because I have nothing of my own. In verse 3, and Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So you can see how Abram is struggling. It's not that he didn't believe God, but, but he remembers these, these branches of the promise God gave to him, and he looks around his circumstance, and he says, How? particularly that second branch of population. He, the land's there, I get that, and you can probably bless the world through us in some way, but the population, I mean, I still got none, and I'm not getting younger than 75, right? So, so help me out, how is this possible? Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, speaking of Eleazar, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? It's not going to be one of your servants through whom this great nation will come. It's through you. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that's the Lord, reckoned it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And this is justification. This is salvation. God granting an unrighteous, fearful, sinful, doubting man righteousness because of his belief. It's beautiful. Verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. There's branch one, the promise of location. Verse 8, he said, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? He's still struggling to believe Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Adam drove them away. Now, this is odd to us. Like, what on earth is going on here? But in this day, this is a common way to cut a covenant. This is how they would ensure an oath being sworn would take place. It was symbolic of the covenant that they were cutting. Essentially, the two parties would do what's being done here, divide up these animals, and then they would hold hands and walk through the middle, essentially declaring, if we don't keep the exact requirements of this oath, may we be like these animals. That's what they're saying. May we be divided asunder. May we be ripped apart, because that's how important this oath is. You can see... Well, it's crucial. We understand what the oath is, right? Where it's clear and understandable and has staying power. We have to, because there's a lot at stake here. It seems odd, but this is what happens. And we see this in Jeremiah 34 as well, the same type of oath pattern. So that's what's being set up here. Picture it. Abraham's saying, I believe you, Lord, but I'm struggling. And so God, in his grace, says, I'm going to cut a covenant then. Not because I'm not believable, because you need it, Abram. And we need it as well. He puts his own skin in the game and says, this is going to happen. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain. We talked about this last week, how God wants us to know for sure. And here we have an example. Know for certain that your descendants, plural, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Hang on a second, that's new. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 
years. What's he talking about here but Egypt, right? The Egyptian bondage. And notice again, branch two of the promises implied, your descendants will be strangers. So there's the population. But again, where's the location? Well, verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Finally, we see a hint of branch three reaffirmed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, Egypt, I think we could say, cursed the descendants of Abraham. And God says, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. See, while Abram won't be alive to see what God is saying, eventually, after generations in captivity, his descendants, branch two, population, will return to the land, branch one, location. And we'd ask, okay, why not just now? You know, like, just do it now, Lord. Why the delay? Why do they have to wait for this to happen? Why all these generations? Why can't Abraham walk in and see all of this? Well, God gives us a hint here. Because God is going to be patient with the current tenants, the Amorites, the ones living there. Because he knows he's not going to cause it, but God knows, and we've seen this time and time again in the history of humanity, that a nation left to itself apart from God will spiral into depravity. And so will the Amorites. They will spiral and spiral and spiral. God is giving them time to repent, but he knows they won't. And the time is not yet where their depravity reaches its apex. But when it does, God will bring his people out of bondage and he will give them back their land, that location, and use them simultaneously as his arm of judgment against these wicked, unrepentant people. But they have to wait. Verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Remember, something goes between the pieces. Usually both parties involved. You'd say, well, where's Abram? Isn't he involved here? Well, he's napping. He's in a deep sleep, right? So here we have God and God going through the carcasses, cutting this covenant, him and him alone. We have here the holy, pure Lord who produces heat and light, represented here by a smoking oven and a flaming torch. He alone is cutting this covenant against himself. Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And then he gets very specific. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. That's the passage everyone fears reading out loud, right? I practice that one a lot. A lot of names there. But you can see the specificity. I'm cutting a covenant right now. Me. You're asleep. It's me passing through these animals. I am solemnly swearing your descendants, plural, will get this land. Location and population reiterated. As we leave chapter 15 into chapter 16, Abram again showcases an imperfect faith, attempting to kind of help God out with the population promise. Again, he still has no son, and they're starting to get antsy. And in fact, Sarai, his wife, comes up and says, God said that it has to come through you. He didn't say anything about me yet. 
So, so sleep with my servant, Hagar. That will work out. And so Abram says, okay, and goes in with Hagar. And that doesn't end well. Surprise, surprise. That whole situation does not pan out all that well. It actually produces just more and more conflict. Scan over to chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, clock is ticking. What on earth? I get the promise, a great nation. Okay, I'm 99 now. There's all sorts of funny pictures that come with this. A 100-year-old bouncing the baby boy on his knee. There's a whole sort it's humorous, but not to Abram. You've made a promise, God. How is there going to be a great nation without a son? Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I mean, it's almost overkill, isn't it? We get it. Descendants, 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 many nations, kings. We get it over and over again. Why does God repeat himself? Because Abram is struggling to believe. I'm 99. How is it possible? So God hammers him. Here it is. Here it is. Population, population, population. It is going to come to pass, Abram. Then verse 8. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And there's the location reiterated again. And then in the verses that follow, God gives him a sign of the covenant, a token. You'll remember last week, and if you weren't here, you'll remember anyway, that the rainbow was the token of the Noahic covenant. I'm a big fan of that one, as opposed to the one Abraham gets, which is circumcision. I think the rainbow is a little bit nicer, but that's still the token of the covenant. I'm making a promise with you, and the moments you forget, look at the token is telling you, I mean what I say. I have sworn an oath to you. Drop down to verse 15. Just in case we're concerned that Sarai is getting left out here. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her, not by Hagar, by her then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? See, I told you it was funny. It's not just me. Abraham thinks it's funny. And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, which is the child he bore with Hagar. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. In other words, this promise, this covenant that God is making with Abraham, it will live on in perpetuity through the son of promise, through Isaac, and eventually through his grandson, Jacob. In fact, if we skip ahead, and I won't do this for the sake of time, but if we read in Genesis chapter 26, and then in Genesis chapter 28, 
with Isaac and Jacob, respectively, all three branches are reiterated verbatim. Again, to Isaac and to Jacob. Three branches. Location, population, global benediction. One more stop. We're done. Genesis chapter 22. A well-known text to many of us. This is where Abraham's faith is tested. And it's a test he passes beautifully. Then look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, remember who passed through the carcasses, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, this thing, and not have withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. There's the land. So we see here there's the location and the population. Then verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And there is the global benediction. Branches one, two, and three. We made it. That's it. Deep breath. The question, what is this covenant? What is the Abrahamic covenant? How do we take all of that and more and distill it down to understand what was being sworn Well, God promised Abram, he promised him a particular location that will eternally be home to a great population through whom God will dispense global benediction. That is the Abrahamic covenant. A place, a people, and a blessing. That is what God swore to this nobody. A person God chose and chose to use. Now the next question Where does the Abrahamic fit, the Abrahamic covenant fit into all of this? Well, if the Noahic covenant is the foundation on which God intends to carry out his restoration of what was lost in Genesis chapter 3, then the Abrahamic covenant simply builds on top of that foundation. It provides us, as we read through the Bible, more clarity as to how God is going to fix what sin destroyed. We see here that God is going to bless it all. He's going to restore it all, but he's going to do so, now we learn, through a particular people, through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, if you don't know, later is renamed as Israel. And we need to think ahead for a moment here, some spoilers as far as the covenants go. God will eventually promise an eternal kingdom. Well, you need land for a kingdom. He's eventually going to promise a righteous king. Well, you need a people to rule over if you have a king. Didn't we just get that in the Abrahamic covenant? We had a land and a people. And eventually, God is going to have to deal with the sin issue that plagues us. He's going to have to deal with that, and he's going to do so by sending a redeemer, by sending the Messiah, the Christ, to bless the world with reconciliation and forgiveness. But that blessed redeemer has to come from somewhere And the Abrahamic covenant here tells people where to look, what family line to watch, where will we find him. And this is exactly why Matthew opens his gospel account the way he does. He says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Why would they care? Because they know it's through Abraham that this world-blessing seed is coming. And so they're watching. They're looking for this individual. See, the restoration project is underway. The foundation was laid with the Noahic Covenant, and on top of that, God has staked out a location. He will grow a population out of which will flow global benediction. And that's where the Abrahamic Covenant fits. Now finally, why does it matter? Why does the Abrahamic Covenant matter to us today? What difference does it make to us as we go to work or school tomorrow, as we care for our loved ones tomorrow on a Monday? What difference does it make? Well, I have two considerations for us as we close. Two things that were on my mind as I steeped in this text this week that affected me, and I pray they'll affect you as well, as they shape our minds. First, the Abrahamic covenant reminds us that there is salvation for the whole world. The whole world. Notice the scope of the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We come to the New Testament. For God so loved the world, the whole world, salvation to the whole world through Abraham's seed. And yes, Isaac was that son of promise. He was that promised seed. But we know that ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ was the seed of Abraham. And in case you think I'm making that up, Paul says exactly this in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. Christ is the ultimate world-blessing seed that would come through Abraham. He's the ultimate son of promise, the bringer of global benediction. And this will obviously happen totally when he returns, as Steve was pointing us to at the table. That's when full global blessing will be realized. But in the meantime, don't we have full global blessing in eternal life through faith in Christ? Is that not a global blessing available to the whole world? I hope you say amen. It totally is. And that is through that promised seed. Yes, we await the final restoration. That will be such a global blessing. But until then, eternal life is pretty good too, isn't it? We have that as our global blessing. Like Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, who believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, so must every person today believe in God to receive that righteousness. Because we are not righteous, are we? Just like Noah stepped off that ark, we are not righteous, we are sinful. And to be in the presence of a totally righteous, holy God, we need to be righteous. And it's not coming from inside of me. I don't know about you. So I need something external. I need something eternal, actually, eternal. Because even if I got something from outside of myself and it wasn't eternal, I'd throw it off. I'd ruin it by tomorrow. Your God says, you're righteous today. Thanks, Lord. And an hour later, I'm back in the depths. So we need something external and internal credited to us. We require that righteousness. In fact, we require God's righteousness. That's what we require. We require that reckoned to us, imputed to us, credited to our accounts. And we say, how do we get that? Well, we get that by believing in the Lord like Abram did. Now, Abram believed the Lord. He believed that a promise was coming. He believed he was getting a land. He believed a population was coming. He believed all of that. For us, what do we need to believe? We're still believing in God, but the content has changed a little bit, hasn't it? It has expanded. 
What do we believe? We believe that he sent his son to die in our place on the cross. That's what we believe. And he paid our debt in that act, satisfying holy wrath. And then he rose again, defeating death. That's what we believe. And the moment we believe that, we can check our spiritual bank account because that righteousness is there. It wasn't there before, and it's not ours, but it will always be there. We're rich in righteousness, imputed to our accounts, reckoned to us because of faith. We get that by believing in the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. The blessing of salvation is for everyone who believes. It's for the world. Now turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. I made a big deal earlier about the three branches of this promise and how we must keep them distinct and not confuse them. They're distinct, but they are cooperative, as I hope we've seen. But they are distinct. And Galatians chapter 3 helps us to understand that. Starting in verse 6, again, Paul writing, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. That is, any of us who believe what we just talked about, we become inheritors of what was given to Abraham. What was given to him? The covenant. We become inheritors of that by believing in Abraham. But the question is, which branches? That is where we need to remain distinct. What do we get? Do we get the land? Do we get part of the population? Or do we get the global blessing? Well, we keep reading Galatians 3, and we find out. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Hey, that's us. That's good news preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. What branch is that? Branch number three. Global blessing through Christ. Verse nine, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Global benediction. See, by trusting in Christ, we become beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant, but not the whole thing. But not the whole thing. We become beneficiaries of branch number three. And it's a good benefit, isn't it? We get adopted into that covenant where we are blessed through Abraham's seed, that coming seed, that coming child, the chosen one, Jesus Christ. We are blessed. But in no way do we take over the land. We want to be very careful here, like some people teach, that because Israel blew it in the first century when Jesus came along, they have foregone all of these promises and now the church gets to inherit everything. When he said land and he had this staked out, this little piece of real estate, he actually meant the new heavens and new earth. It's been expanded. What he said about the, this nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he meant a spiritual family. And we say, that sounds so well. It preaches well. I'm doing it now. It preaches well, doesn't it? Except for the fact that makes God a liar. There's no way that Abraham, when he got that covenant, thought, oh, totally, this is a spiritual family. Oh, totally, this land here... Remember how many times he reiterated, this land, this land, this land, this land, a population from your seed, your seed, your seed. Again, ad nauseum, to the point where like, what is going on? Abraham understood from his line a people, a population in a specific location. So we do not erase all of that in this church time, in the time of the church. Instead, when we become sons of Abraham by faith, we are grafted into that third branch. And that brings us to the second branch implication for us this week. Why I think the Abrahamic covenant matters for us today. Yes, it brings salvation to the world. Praise God for that. But it should also prompt intercession for Israel. 
it should prompt prayer for the nation of Israel. If God means what he says, brothers and sisters, and he does, I hope so. I'm staking my eternity on it. I hope I can understand him. I hope when he promises something, it means what he promises. So if that's true, then those first two branches have to remain intact. They have to be. God has implicated himself to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he doesn't grow a population that dwells eternally in a specific location, then what do we call God except a liar? And I don't want to live in a world where God is a liar. It cannot be so. That means he broke the covenant. May the God of the universe be as those severed animals are and ripped apart. May it never be. Obviously, that can't happen. So if God means what he says, then he still, even today, has unfinished business with the nation of Israel. In fact, Paul asks and answers this very question in Romans 11. I won't read the whole chapter for us, but he says at the beginning of the chapter, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to talk about how there is a time now where Israel is under a partial hardening of judgment because they rejected the Messiah at his first coming. But when he comes again, they will not reject him that second time. These promises have to remain intact. God is not done with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He can't be. He swore oaths to make them a population with a location. And so we pray for Israel. We pray for them. We take seriously Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 at this church. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. It doesn't mean that you have to support Israel politically or ideologically, but understand that the God of the universe has made promises to them. Just like Abram. Was Abram somebody? No. Is Israel something great? No. In fact, God says that. I chose you not because you were great, because you were nothing. And that way I get all the glory. We don't have to support them in any of these ways, but we understand that the God of the universe has made promises to them. And while they are now being judged for their rejection of Messiah when he first came, they won't reject him the second time. And so we pray for them. Ask God to soften hearts. Ask God to bring them to repentance. Salvation is for the world. Praise God for that. That's why we're here today. Salvation is a global thing. It's been given to all. It's for the world. Eternal life to all who believe. Praise God for that. Be grateful for that. Celebrate that. Grasp that if you've never believed it before. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ. But while we remember this salvation, remember also to pray for the nation through whom it came. It came through Israel. And God is not done because God means what he says. It has to come to pass, whether we understand it or not. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.